Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Me and my husband, we just get it done in our car and try to break through. And the city was already blocked and surrounded. This is Diana Berg. She recorded this video while trying to escape her home in the city of Mariupol, which is on the southern coast of Ukraine. And since the war began, Russian forces have basically wiped Mariupol off the map. We've heard reports of incessant bombings, obliterated buildings, no electricity, no running water, not enough food. And so a few weeks ago, Diana and her family made a break for it and started a dangerous journey west. The route is really risky with 15 or something, I don't know, many checkpoints of Russians. and. Eventually, she reached the city of Lviv, where she spoke to CNN's John Berman. When you first sat down uh, and, and I was greeting you, I said, how are you? Yeah, and I we'll, said, I'm alive. Diana is one of the lucky ones. So many civilians are still trapped in cities like Mariupol as Russian bombs rain down relentlessly. And as Ukrainians continue to fight back, there are fears that Russian President Vladimir Putin may resort to more drastic, even more violent measures. Today, I'm talking with CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour. She has an unparalleled perspective on conflict and international relations gained from her years reporting for war zones around the world. She regularly demands answers in exclusive interviews with global leaders. I talked to her about red lines, war crimes, and why Vladimir Putin may soon be unable to ignore his battlefield losses back at home. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rind. Christian, it's Friday afternoon, and on our last episode, we talked to your colleague Natasha Bertrand, who was in Brussels for this big NATO summit that President Biden attended. You were there as well. You're just back from Brussels. So can you catch us up real quick? Did anything substantial come out of that meeting? Actually, yes, quite a lot. First and foremost, and I've covered a lot of these kind of wars which require a united front, certainly by the allies, to push back, whether it was Saddam Hussein back in 1990-91 from Kuwait, or now to try to push back Putin from his unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. So what they demonstrated in Brussels was this continuing show of strength and unity, because Putin has always banked on being able to sow divisions into the alliance, whether it's the EU, whether it's the transatlantic political alliance, or indeed the military alliance, which is NATO. And he hasn't been able to do that this time. And they believe that this has sort of caught him off guard, that it it answers a little bit of the you know, questions as to why he's not performing as well. And we can talk about his military on the ground later. But they have they have maintained this solidarity and strength, and they are obviously sending an enormous amount of defensive weapons to Ukraine because, as they said to me, the Secretary General of NATO and indeed the U.S. Ambassador to NATO, 
that it's in great part due to the training and the weapons that we've been sending, not just around this current crisis, but since the previous one, when Putin invaded in 2014, that, that Ukraine is able to hold them off and inflict such huge damage on the Russian forces so far. So you think that those weapons and that assistance is more than just symbolic, we're here for you, that it's actually making a difference on the ground right now? A thousand percent. Clearly, the Ukrainians will say, and then, then they're correct, that they need a lot more. They need it daily. They're talking about needing hundreds of javelins and stingers per day. These are the uh, man-held or person-held um, anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons. They need a lot of those because they're using those a lot. They also need more sophisticated um, anti-aircraft missiles and, you know, to, to, to really sort of be able to get the planes down because Russia has a big advantage when it comes to aircraft. And one U.S. expert say, you know, the Ukrainians may run out of planes before they run out of pilots. Mm. So they really do need this stuff. Um, but with what they have, and given that they are the David against the Russian Goliath, they are putting on a massively important show of resistance. And do we get a sense that this is getting to the Russians, not in terms of just losses on the battlefield, but in the psyche and in the mindset of the top leadership uh, of the Russians? I think so. From all that we're able to gather from our own eyes and just looking at the momentum, anybody looking at this with a modicum of experience, you know, on the battlefield or watching a war from, you know, whether you're an armchair general or a real general, you can tell that the Russian offensive is going not just not well, badly. They apparently gathered something like 190,000 forces along the eastern border, along the border between Belarus and, and Ukraine. They launched with a multi-pronged offensive that clearly they weren't able to back up. And therefore, the only places that they've been able to kind of do better than elsewhere is on the east, where they already had Russian forces inside the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, and also to the south, because they're complementing their force posture with offshore artillery from, from warships. Mm. And so you see what's happening. They look like they're trying to get Mariupol to create a full land bridge between Russia, eastern Ukraine, and on into Crimea. That's what they really, really want right now. And it looks, I mean, some are suggesting that if they can actually do that, they may, may decide to call it a day and declare victory and go back. But that would be very difficult because it would mean that they would then force the international community and Ukraine to accept the legitimacy of what they've taken by force, to accept that Crimea is theirs and to accept that those eastern parts of Ukraine are theirs. Right. That's a, it's a hard thing to imagine that that would happen. But if, say, Putin wants to press on, what are the kind of worst case scenarios that NATO officials, Western leaders are, are telling you about or are fearing that Putin could take to kind of escalate things and really make this grim? Well, I think they're already grim for, for civilians. I mean, if you look at Mariupol, it is, I say it's, it's Srebrenica, you know, from Bosnia 30 years ago or, or, or so. Uh, they are pounding civilian targets. They are pounding all the infrastructure, homes, hospitals, theaters, shelters, whatever they can get their bombs to, they're doing it because their ground offensive is going badly. You know, these are war crimes and they're resorting to targeting civilian infrastructure, which unfortunately is sometimes called in the parlance soft targets. Mm. Um, 
in order to try to break the spirit of the people and to break the spirit of the government, to force the government to surrender. And neither the people nor the government of Ukraine are willing to surrender. In fact, they're doing exactly the opposite. They're fighting back. But Mariupol is a terrible situation. Um, we have some latest figures from the first of the shelters that the Russians bombed some 10 days ago. They say there are at least 300 dead there, and mm. many, many more could be buried alive under the rubble. We're now dead, but buried under the rubble. Could I quickly ask you, though, I need to ask you this, because the world is afraid, and I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid, of the nuclear option. Would he use it? In my interview with Dmitry Peskov, who's Putin's confidant and his spokesman for the last 20 years, you know, he refused to rule out the Russian use of any kind of nuclear weapon. Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. And I asked specifically because Putin had put that. And I didn't just ask out of the blue because I don't want to escalate it sure. rhetorically or any other way. But I needed an answer from somebody who knew what the president was thinking, given that President Putin, even before the invasion, around the very first hours, warned the West and anybody that if they tried to deter him, they would face the worst consequences, in his words, that you've ever seen in history. So you are basically saying only an existential threat to your country. Um, I still don't know whether I've got a, a full answer from you, and I just, I'm just going to assume that President Putin wants to scare the world and keep the world on tender hooks. So this is a big issue, and when I was speaking to the officials at NATO, the Secretary General, they said, yes, you know, this would be a game changer if this happened you know, chemical warfare or biological warfare on a NATO country. But what about a non-NATO country like Ukraine? Or if, if like a chemical cloud, say, floats over the border into Poland, like, how does NATO respond to that? How, how tricky does this get when you're talking about weapons like these? They simply won't answer that right now. One, because they probably haven't figured it out and they don't want mm. to talk about red lines, given that the Obama administration laid a very clear red line and then failed to enforce it back in 2013. That has enabled Putin. That has emboldened Putin. Western weakness ever since 2014. And frankly, even before, since Putin invaded Georgia in 2008, the Republic of Georgia, uh, the Western response has been, has been minimal and not maximal. And Putin, according to all those who know him, is a person who will keep taking until he's punched in the nose. Those are the words of a former Russian foreign minister who I spoke to, Andrei Kozarev, the first Russian foreign minister after the fall of the Soviet Union. So the West has tried in good faith to integrate Putin into the you know, international structure and international organizations only to watch him turn around and slap everybody in the face and you know, invade unprovoked a country that it is sovereign, independent, recognized by the United Nations and everybody else. Ukraine is a sovereign country. It bears saying again and again because Putin's trying to deny that. And I think that, the, you know, what gets very little attention is that Russia actually, according to the 1994 um, Budapest mem Memorandum, is actually bound to defend Ukraine, not to hmm. attack Ukraine, because Ukraine gave up all its nuclear weapons in 94 to Russia in order to consolidate the former Soviet Union's uh, nuclear stockpile.
more of my conversation with Christian Amanpour in just a minute. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about war crimes. You mentioned that. And in the last few days, the U.S. has taken the step of officially making that accusation against Russia. But can we just get on the same page here in terms of what is a war crime? Well, war crime is is a little bit of an umbrella term. Um, it is a specific term, which means the contravention and violation of Geneva Conventions on the battlefield. But it's also, you know, they're also higher crimes, which are crimes against humanity, and the highest one is, um, is, is genocide, of course. And a war crime in, in big, let's say, broadly speaking, is when you violate the laws and norms of war. So it means that you cannot deliberately or even accidentally, repeatedly accidentally, target civilians or civilian infrastructure. That is the basis of what is not allowed in any conventional war. And when it's clear that a force is doing that, an aggressor is doing that over and over again so that it's not an accident, it's not a one-time thing, oh, I'm sorry, we hit this civilian structure because we thought it was a military structure, that might be an excuse once, but it's not an excuse when there's a pattern. And conversely, if you don't take enough care to avoid civilians and civilian structures. That is also a war crime. So it's the act of attack and the act of failing to take due care not to attack civilian infrastructures. Then you have a whole bunch of laws that that are around weapons of mass destruction. It's a war crime to use chemical, biological, or, or nuclear. And it's a war crime, obviously, when you get to genocide to attack in a way to wipe out an ethnicity in any form or fashion. And again, that is what Putin is suggesting when he says that Ukraine is not a place. It's not a recognized separate entity to Russia. That is a genocidal ideology. Is there a reason that the U.S. 
made the distinction about one month in officially? Is that, was there some strategy behind making that so public right away? Well, I'm not sure because there are pros and cons to it. The pros are to show the people of that country that their president has now joined and their military is now being accused. Let's face it, these are still accusations and allegations which have to be proved in a court of of law. And these are the highest crimes under international law. So the burden of proof is huge. And you have to prove command responsibility. You have to be able to prove that orders were given or orders were deliberately not given Mm -hmm. in terms of taking care to, to prevent these kinds of crimes. The people who are being forced out of Kosovo continue to report that the Yugoslav border guards are still stripping away their identity papers and removing their car registration plates. But I will go back to uh, the Balkans when I was covering Bosnia and then Kosovo. They were shelling our houses, says this woman. I don't know where my sons are. Slobodan Milosevic, who was the president of Serbia, Yugoslavia, then Serbia, as it kept changing form, was secretly indicted during the Kosovo War. It was called a sealed indictment by the International Criminal Tribunal in The Hague. And then they opened the indictment and publicized it. And that had the impact of letting his people know that he now was accused in the ranks of the global pariahs and that their country was potentially a rogue state led by somebody who's been accused of the highest crimes under international law. That then actually did lead to protests that spelt the end of the Serbian dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic and the beginning of a democratic process. And then shortly after that, Milosevic was arrested by his own country and handed over to The Hague. So it has a snowball effect politically, they hope, but eventually the legal aspect of it has the effect of accountability. Yeah, what is the accountability process? How does that work? It's a court of law. It's very difficult. There are very, very accomplished prosecutors, but they're also very accomplished defense lawyers. Uh, and it's a it's a battle in a court of law. You know, Slobodan Milosevic, I want to say he was on trial for some six years and he still didn't finish the case. He died He died in the middle of the case. But I would say that there are some experts, and this is regarding Putin now, who are concerned that this is a person who, when cornered and when he figures out that he has nowhere to go but potentially a court that potentially could put him away for the rest of his life, what might he do? Hmm. How do you negotiate a peace if he's the head of one side of of the table. And what might he do? And, you know, I don't even want to go there, but what might he do if he feels that he has nowhere to go but down? Yeah, I want to ask, is is he following a playbook here as you see it? Or is this just kind of going along, seeing what happens, and then the world kind of has to nervously wait and see? Well, I think he's following a playbook on what he doesn't want to see happen. He doesn't want to have what happened to Saddam Hussein happen to him. Invasion, uprising, Saddam Hussein, finally, and it was bordering on extrajudicial, was hanged. Uh, He doesn't want to see what happened to uh, Hosni Mubarak or Muammar Gaddafi or any of those uh, strong men who were overthrown and in some cases killed, like Gaddafi, uh, in the Arab Spring. What he does want is to be 
able to reconstitute a sense of greater Russia, Ruski Mir, as they say, the Russian world, i.e. empire. He genuinely has caused himself to believe that he is the only human capable of doing that and that that is the right thing to do, despite the fact that, you know, 30 years ago, people all across the Soviet Union and, of course, Eastern Europe rose up against this political project known as communism and brought that down. And they wanted freedom. But he is a man full of grievance and a man who has convinced himself that he is the only one to be able to restore a historical wrong. And this is a problem when trying to, to deal with him. But on top of everything else, he has gambled. And now, up until now, we're talking now on the one month and several days since he invaded, he's losing. He's losing on the battlefield. What does that mean going forward? You know, we've obviously seen a lot of Russian soldiers killed so far. The The accounts vary on who you ask. But how long can Putin avoid the blowback from dead sons and, and, and daughters coming back to Russia like this? Well, I think even though it is a dictatorship and he has cracked down heavily on dissent and on the media and on getting any of this evidence to his own people, I think the mothers and the families and social media and the stories that are coming out will reach some kind of critical mass. I do believe they will. And Russians will be uh, subjected to the reality some way or the other. Uh, after the 2014 invasions, mothers were very instrumental in complaining about sending their sons to this. Hmm. Furthermore, there is a lot of conversation that's been intercepted, a lot of uh, videos that have been sent back and phone calls from soldiers to their parents saying they didn't know why they were there, they'd never been told they were going to war, and many of these are conscripts. Now, it is not in Russia's defense constitution to send conscripts to a hot war. And yet, they are there. So the question is why? And also, the other thing that's really interesting is that several generals, according to Ukrainian and U.S. intercepts and things like that, have been killed. This is, again, very, very rare. You very rarely get generals at the front. Generals are very rarely killed in battle in modern battle. Yeah, they're usually because, in the back. Yeah, usually. Right. But now it looks that the morale was so bad, the organization at the front was so bad, the um, supply lines were so bad, the communications were so bad amongst the Russians that they had to have some senior experienced warriors, the generals, to come up and organize. And they've been killed. It's, it's really a big deal. And I think, you know what? I think NATO is getting a very, very quick and interesting lesson on what would happen if Russia expanded the war. There's no doubt that NATO would win hands down. The only problem is the nuclear option. But in a so-called modernized Russian army that's performing like this, just next door, in a, a much less equipped and much less numerous Ukrainian army is just beggar's belief. Christian Amanpour, thanks for being here. Thank you. One more thing before we go. If you're looking to hear more about the war from someone who really knows Ukraine, I want to recommend the latest episode of the Axe Files podcast. David Axelrod has this fascinating conversation with former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. 
She talks about Putin's strategy, the importance of NATO, and whether diplomacy has any chance of succeeding here. That's the Axe Files podcast. Find it wherever you listen. And remember, we'll have new episodes of this podcast for you every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates on the conflict, you can subscribe to CNN Five Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horowitz, Nathan Miller, and Paula Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Koop, Ashley Lusk, Elizabeth Roberts, Colin Wallace, and Matt Dempsey. I'll talk to you next time. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.